happening now, death and destruction in multiple cities across Ukraine after the biggest Russian air bombardment since the start of the war. President Vladimir Zelensky now pleading with the international community for help to respond to what he's calling an act of terror. Also this hour, the Trump campaign promising a quick appeal after the former president was removed from the 2024 primary ballot in Maine. The risks of electoral chaos are rising tonight with two states now disqualifying Trump based on the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban. And just 17 days before the Iowa caucuses, the fallout is continuing tonight for Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley after her answer, or really non-answer, about the cause of the Civil War. Her GOP rival, Chris Christie, calling her a slippery, slick politician. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Caitlin Collins, and you're in the Situation Room. We begin this hour with Russia's massive new air assault on Ukraine, a sign of the wintertime campaign that Ukrainian officials had been warning about and dreading. President Biden calling it a stark reminder that President Vladimir Putin remains committed to obliterating Ukraine. CNN's Nick Robertson has our report. From Ukraine's center, Dnipro, to all points. Kyiv in the north, Odessa in the south, Kharkiv in the northeast, and to Lviv in the far west. Russia launched its biggest air attack since their ground invasion 22 months ago. 44 of 158 Russian missiles evading Ukraine's Western-supported air defenses, killing and wounding civilians. This man, narrowly surviving, pulled from the rubble in Kharkiv. Schools, shopping malls, private homes and high-rises, even a maternity hospital hit. In the capital, this resident awoken by missiles at 7.30 a.m. It was a horrible sound. It was so frightening. The missile was flying and everything was buzzing, whirring, she says. I didn't know what to do. President Zelensky is accusing Russia of throwing nearly every type of weapon in its arsenal against Ukraine. Ukraine's air force describe a complex attack of interlocking waves of drones, bombers, fighter jets, crews, hypersonic and other missiles intended to distract and stretch air defenses. There was outrage and anger from European leaders, but Russia's complex assault appears intended not just to exploit weaknesses in Ukraine's air defense system, but it's waning international support, highlighting Ukraine's need for European and U.S. monies held up by internal politicking. In a week when Ukraine appeared to have turned its narrative to one of success, destroying a valuable Russian tank transporter ship in Crimea, reality appears to be a second winter under sustained, systemic Russian bombardment. Nothing changes. Russia's goal is the same, he says, to destroy Ukraine as a state and to destroy all rebellious Ukrainians as a nation. Resilience, now Ukrainians' best friend. 
You know, and I think to that point, what President Zelensky had to say today about appealing for support, a moment when Ukraine needs to, uh, support, saying that it heard from Western leaders and that he was grateful for their support. And I really think that strikes a very careful note from him thinking back to last summer at that NATO summit where Zelensky was criticized, frankly, for not sounding... Uh, thankful enough, if you will, offering enough gratitude for all the support he's getting. Now he sees just how tenuous uh, that support is and that it may not even come in time for what he needs to defend the civilian populations in the cities. He's desperate. And I think we really got a, a real sense of that today. Yeah. And it's not clear it'll come at all from the United States. Nick Robertson, thank you for that report on what we saw happening today. For a closer look at the destruction that this new Russian air bombardment has caused, reporter Helena Lenz is on the scene and takes a look inside the ruins of a warehouse that was hit in Kyiv. Let me just uh, take you inside and show you what actually uh, the, the destruction that is inside because, uh, you know, the, the warehouse was uh, hit, the, uh, it caught fire. Uh, when we arrived here, the smoke was still very visible from the outside. Right now, uh, we can still see smoke in the inside. Uh, the smell is actually also strong. Um, and for some time we couldn't access uh, the inside of uh, the warehouse because firefighters were still trying uh, to uh, stabilize uh, so nothing could actually uh, fall. Uh, we now have permission to enter and as you can see, uh, you know, uh, there is the structure is uh, completely uh, destroyed. The roof of the warehouse is totally destroyed. And we are actually walking most of the time on uh, shattered uh, glasses, on fragments of the warehouse, but also of the equipment that was inside. I was speaking with the uh, general manager of uh, the, the, the company, the, which is actually a German company working in Ukraine. And he was telling me there is only electrotechnical equipment here there's no weapons uh, and it's now mostly destroyed. Helena Lenz inside that warehouse in Kyiv. Thank you for that report. I want more on the reaction to what we're seeing play out here in Ukraine with our military and diplomatic experts. And Ambassador Bill Taylor, let me start with you because you heard something that Nick Robertson mentioned there, which was Ukraine in recent days sinking Russia's tank transport ship. Just another blow to, to the Black Sea fleet uh, of you, of Russia's. I mean, what do you make of whether or not this is retribution for that, or is just this really part of that campaign that Ukrainian officials had been worried about that would happen come wintertime? Okay, then I think this is the uh, campaign that the Ukrainian officials have been worried about. This is what happened last winter. You reported, and many have observed that the Russians attacked during the winter when it's very cold, very cold there, as Nick knows, um, and when he, when it's very cold there, he gets to attack the civilians, the civilian targets, electricity generation and distribution, which affects the water going up into the apartment buildings. It's, it's crucial um, and it's cruel, Caitlin. So this is what they've been anticipating. They're better prepared this year for this, but the, but the Ukrainians know that this is a big assault that's coming from the Russians. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like this is the end of it. Colonel Layton, when you look at what actually uh, Russia was doing here. Ukraine is basically saying they threw every weapon that they have at them. Hypersonic missiles, cruise missiles, strategic bombers, drones. What does that tell you about the tactics that Russia is using here to not only try to overwhelm, but also to potentially confuse the defenses that Ukrainian has? 
that Ukraine has. Yeah, Caitlin, that, yeah, exactly. That Ukraine has really, like Ambassador Taylor said, anticipated some of this. But what was really interesting about this attack, on one hand, it's kind of like throwing the kitchen sink at the problem. Uh, the Russians are throwing everything into it, as you mentioned. Uh, but what was really interesting about this was the fact that it was so integrated. All these different diverse weapons platforms coming together in a very uh, concerted effort going through all of the targets that they had in all parts of Ukraine, from the west to the north to the east, and even to the south-central part of the country. So what you're seeing is a highly integrated effort, or at least an attempt at a highly integrated effort, by the Russians to exert maximum pressure. Now, they're going after the civilian infrastructure. They're not going after uh, as many of the military targets, although there were some in this uh, this batch of targets. Uh, but the main target is the civilian population, and it's a question of going after Ukrainian morale. Well, and when it comes to Ukrainian morale, I mean, Evelyn Farkas, it doesn't help to see the fight that we're seeing play out here in the United States over sending more aid to Ukraine. I mean, they've been warning about the fact that if they don't get more aid from the United States, from other European countries, uh, just how detrimental that'll be uh, on the battlefield. And you saw President Biden kind of acknowledging that in his very lengthy statement on this bombardment today. Can Ukraine make it through the winter without getting more aid? And how does that embolden President Putin here? Yeah, Caitlin, uh, you make a really important point. Uh, President Biden obviously took advantage as much as, as much as he could of this latest barrage, this latest attack on Ukrainian civilians, innocent civilians and their infrastructure by Russia to remind the American people that first of all, we're the ones that are making sure together with our European allies that more death and destruction isn't occurring. But, but if we stop providing our assistance, it's guaranteed that you will see more women, children and innocent civilians dying at the hands of the Russians. So um, he did take advantage of that, rightfully so. I think, though, it's also a reminder, you know, yes, I was in Ukraine in October, and I know that Ambassador Taylor's been there recently as well. The Ukrainians were ready for a barrage. They knew there was going to be a barrage coming from Russia. But the, the timing, I think, does matter. Putin is under incredible pressure domestically. We could have a whole nother segment on what's going on in Russia. Um, and, and he's also uh, mindful of the fact that you know, the the only way to weaken Ukraine is to try to get at the people's morale and at the West's morale. And I think this strengthens Ukraine's morale. It remains to be seen to get to your question what it does to Western morale, but hopefully it strengthens it. Yeah, a major question with lawmakers. Go back to Washington in just a few weeks. Thanks to you all on that new development here tonight. Also coming up, speaking of former President Trump and how he is responding behind the scenes as he is preparing his legal team to appeal that latest decision to remove him from the ballot in the state of Maine. Tonight, the Trump campaign promising to appeal after the former president was removed from a second state's primary ballot. Maine's secretary of state making this bombshell decision about 24 hours ago following a similar ruling that we saw from the Supreme Court in Colorado. CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider is following it all for us. Jessica, I think the big question here is what is happening next in the main case, since this is not a decision by a court, but, but instead by a secretary of state. Yeah, and that's why they'll have this time to appeal to the courts. They'll have to appeal Trump's team, though, 
pretty quickly because, like I said, this was a case decided by the main Secretary of State, but with an appeal, as Trump's team has promised here, it then will be heard by the state courts in Maine. And the state's laws here dict dictate that this next level of court, the Superior Court, it must make a decision pretty soon by January 17th. So this was a decided that was it was a decision decided by the state Secretary of State unilaterally on her own. She held that hearing earlier this month, and she said that while this was a big decision to make, she said that all of the evidence in her view is really indisputable. Here she is. No Secretary of State has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, but no presidential candidate has ever engaged in insurrection and been disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Now, her decision last night, it's obviously come under a lot of criticism. Many people have been saying, you know, it's, it's the voters who should get to decide who's elected. It shouldn't be a secretary of state who decides on, who's on the ballot. So here's the top Republican in Maine. Here's what he had to say. Our voting rights uh, enshrined in the Constitution are sacred to us. And to have one particular person uh, remove, remove really the, the, the top candidate from the ballot because she dislikes that person, uh, just smells of, of politics that uh, so many Americans really, really hate now. And this isn't the final word here. It'll next be heard by the state's trial court, then potentially the state's highest court. And Caitlin, it really likely will be eventually appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, where, of course, the Colorado decision to take Trump off the ballot, it has already been appealed by the GOP in Colorado. Yeah, and they want the Supreme Court to, to fast track that decision. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to all of this, this isn't the only two states where we're seeing this effort play out. It's played out in a lot of states. Some it's been outright rejected. Some have had these decisions. We're also waiting tonight for another decision about keeping him on the ballot in Oregon. When do we know or what do we know about when a decision could come in that case? It really could come at any time here, Caitlin. You know, this is a liberal group in Oregon. They filed a lawsuit earlier this month and they filed it directly to the state Supreme Court. And what they want the justices to do there is order Oregon Secretary of State to take Trump off the primary and general election ballots. They're citing, of course, the 14th Amendment. Trump's team actually has that deadline of tonight to oppose the lawsuit. So at any time really beginning tomorrow, the Supreme Court in Oregon could issue its decision. Um, so there's a little more time in this case, though. You know, Oregon doesn't hold its primary until the end of May, Caitlin. So the Oregon Supreme Court likely has a little bit more time to make this decision since ballots don't need to be printed necessarily anytime soon. Jessica Schneider will be waiting to see what Oregon decides. We'll also speak to the main secretary of state, I should note, about her decision in the next hour. But joining me now is CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman. And Maggie, it's now been you know, nearly 24 hours since this decision from Maine secretary of state came out. Trump has, his campaign has responded. He has posted a, a link to her contact information, but he himself doesn't seem to have said anything about this. How's he reacting privately to being removed from the ballot, not just in Maine, but in, in other states as well. Well, privately, he's saying similar things to what he's saying publicly, Caitlin, which is this is election interference and making all the political arguments that we have gotten used to. This isn't something that his folks are seeking out. It's yet another 
set of court cases when they already have a, a pretty full load of those. But some of his political advisors do think there is political advantage, at least in the short term. In Colorado, he's still on the ballot. So even as that case is likely to go forward to the Supreme Court, he is on the ballot because the decision, the ruling there has been stayed. In Maine, we don't quite know yet what's going to happen. Uh, they believe, generally speaking, he and his advisors, that they will have success at the Supreme Court, but he has also voiced some concern that a court that has, you know, he appointed uh, three of the justices uh, to the Supreme Court and it gave a, the conservatives a supermajority. He is concerned that they are going to look as if they're trying not to rule in his favor and might rule against him. We will see. But right now, this is crowding out final days of the primaries when his rivals who are trailing him need to get attention. And to that end, his team seems uh, sees some advantage. And also, to the points made before, there are a lot of people, including some Democrats, who are criticizing these decisions, and they are amplifying that as much as they can. Yeah, and they're worried about, you know, the actual just basis of this, the unprecedented nature of someone like a secretary of state, yep. you know, making the decision to remove a major party's potential candidate uh, from the ballot. But there also seems to be a political concern here. You talked about the Trump team seeing a political advantage. Chris Christie was on CNN this morning and telling my colleagues that he thinks this is going to make Trump a martyr, that this is going to potentially help him. I mean, if this mm -hmm. does go to the Supreme Court, if they reverse these decisions, uh, how much could that potentially help Trump in this? That's what his team is is relying on, is the idea that this plays into a broader sense that he is being victimized somehow by the system. That's been his argument the whole time for the course of the last two years. I think it's important to note, Caitlin, he has been indicted for things that he did. Uh, the, you know, he is, he is charged with alleged crimes based on a lot of his own actions around trying to stay in office. In the case of, you know, the classified documents that he possessed, these were things he possessed. He argues that he had the right to have them. But again, these are things he did. And I understand that these cases are generally born out of a lot of frustration among Democrats that efforts to hold him accountable in various ways either moved slowly or didn't work at all, like the Senate impeachment trial, the second one. Um, but with the way it's playing out right now, it could end up benefiting him because his team is collapsing all of this in, under the rubric of witch hunt. And they're trying to turn around all of the arguments that are used against Trump that he interfered with the democratic process and trying to suggest that's what's being done to him. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just that decision coming from the Supreme Court. I mean, they're also being asked to rule on right. the other claims, presidential immunity. I mean, they could have a major you know, place in the in the 2024 election. But Maggie, I, I have to ask you about something yep. else that happened today, just given your obviously close coverage of not just Trump, but the, the people around him. Michael Cohen, obviously his former attorney, his former fixer, he is now apparently saying that he mistakenly gave his attorney these non-existent case citations that were generated by artificial intelligence, by Google's BARD system, which were then submitted to a judge as a part of his uh, argument. Uh, I just, what do you, what do you make of that? Look, I, I think that, you know, this, this has been an issue since we learned of the fact that these cases did not exist. And the question was, how did this come to be? He is owning it. And he said, I think, in a court filing that was unsealed today that, you know, he had done this, that it was a mistake and that he was uh, he did not realize how this was going to be used. He didn't realize that the lawyer who submitted the filing using these non-existent cases wasn't going to check to make sure that they did. Um, and so, you know, that is something I think he will point to to say that, look, I was trying to be honest about this. 
the Trump team, unfortunately for Michael Cohen, is going to use this as an example to paint him as what they have all along, which is say that he has a habit of saying things that are not true. Uh, and they have been doing this for some time. There is, Caitlin, a broader lesson for everyone here uh, about artificial intelligence and uh, how dangerous it can be. Yeah, and a lesson for the attorney who submitted that to the judge without uh, seeming to check it. Correct. Maggie Haberman, thank you for your reporting as always. Up next here on the Situation Room, Nikki Haley trying to move past that stumble on the campaign trail in New Hampshire. Is one of her Republican rivals, all of them are seizing on it, but one of them calling her a slippery politician. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is in Iowa today after wrapping up her swing through New Hampshire. But the fallout from what she didn't say about slavery and the cause of the Civil War at a town hall in the Granite State has still been trailing her as her Republican rivals are continuing to pile onto the attacks. CNN's Kristen Holmes is following all of the developments here. Kristen, I think the big question is how the Haley campaign also feels about this and whether or not they're going to be able to move on from these comments if Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis and others, Vivek Ramaswamy, keep talking about them. Yeah, Caitlin, I mean, her Republican opponents definitely don't want her to move on from these comments. We've heard uh, them hitting her relentlessly on the campaign trail. Ron DeSantis going after her authenticity, saying that if you're running for president, you have to be able to talk to the people, not just read off of a teleprompter. But no one has really gone after her as hard as former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Now, that is not that surprising. He appears to have the most to gain if this is detrimental to Nikki Haley in any way, particularly in the state of New Hampshire. He has called her slick. He has called her slippery. And today he took it a step farther, parlaying those terms into her posture when it comes to the former president. Take a listen. This has been her whole campaign. She does not want to offend anyone. She won't tell the truth about Donald Trump, even though she knows that he was the cause of January 6th. She won't say it, even though she knows that he regularly lies. She won't say it. She was asked by a voter again in New Hampshire. Would she categorically rule out being Donald Trump's vice president? And she won't answer the question. These are simple questions for, to a smart woman. And when she doesn't answer them, you have to believe she's being a slippery, slick politician. 
And Caitlin, what he is referring to is at a town hall, what he doesn't mention, this voter said that they were deciding between Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, but wanted her to categorically say that she would not be Donald Trump's vice president. And instead, she said she doesn't play for second and kind of beat around the question. Now, I have talked to a lot of people who know Nikki Haley, who have worked with Nikki Haley, and the thing that they say about Nikki Haley is that she is a smart woman and she is a smart politician. And that doesn't surprise any of them that she wouldn't answer that question, because whether or not she wants to be Trump's vice president, if he is the nominee, she doesn't want to definitely kill that before the options even there. And obviously, we have seen reports that Donald Trump has been floating her name to allies, along with roughly about a dozen other people. But again, Obviously, thing to keep in mind here, we are way too early to be having any vice presidential conversations, so we will just table that until later in the cycle. Yeah, we don't even know who the nominee is yet. Kristen Holmes, thank you for that reporting. My panel is also here, and Alice Stewart, I wonder what you make of how this has been playing out ever since this first non-answer, really, from Nikki Haley, and the way that people like Chris Christie, who obviously have a lot to gain from keeping this comment in the news and keeping it at the forefront of their comments, uh, what do you make of what he's saying about this? Look, when you have the momentum in, uh, at your back like Nikki Haley has for the last several weeks and, and heading uh, this close into Iowa and New Hampshire, the last thing you want is to spend uh, 48 hours talking about uh, not having the correct answer on the root cause of the civil war. And she has cleaned that up. But this clearly is a mode of attack for the other challengers. As for Chris Christie, look, the cornerstone of his campaign has been to take down Donald Trump. And he has been very forceful in his attacks on Donald Trump. Every time he opens his mouth on a trail or on the debate stage, no one can be uh, attacked Donald Trump enough for Chris Christie. But for him to go after Nikki Haley saying that she has basically given Donald Trump a pass, I have to push back a little bit on that because she has been uh, critical of Donald Trump for what he's done with regard to uh, the debt, adding to the debt. She has pushed back for saying that he is not the president, uh, shouldn't be the president uh, moving forward, and really attacked the chaos and division of his candidacy and his presidency. So I think she's pushed back some on Donald Trump, being careful not to alienate his base, but no one could attack Donald Trump enough to satisfy Chris Christie. Well, and Errol, you heard that moment that, that Kristen just referenced there, which is when a voter was asking Nikki Haley last night, yes or no, would you agree to be Donald Trump's vice president? This is how she answered that voter. Is it a chance to redeem yourself after last night's slavery thing? Um, would you be able to say categorically that you will not accept being Trump's vice president? And, you know, the reason is I've got this ballot here, and I'm trying to figure out whether I'm going to mark you or Chris Christie. You may heavily dislike Trump. I get it. And Chris is obsessed with his dislike for Trump. But if you go in with that kind of obsession, you're not going in with the clarity of moving our country forward. I've never played for second. I'm not going to start now. Errol, for example, I mean, Ron DeSantis has been asked this same question. He said no. We did not hear a yes or a no from Nikki Haley. What do you make of that answer? Well, look, she's a trained diplomat, uh, and so she speaks diplomatically. She is probably wondering in in the back of her mind, which part of this game do you people not understand? Uh, You know, I'm old enough to remember when Ronald Reagan was dubbed uh, a practitioner of voodoo economics by George H.W. Bush, who later became his running mate. 
uh, you know, this is about way more than dislike of one person. And to that extent, I think Nikki Haley makes a good point. This is about leadership of the party. This is about leadership of the country. This is about leadership of the free world. It doesn't lend itself to these kind of absolutes. We should point out, by the way, that when it comes to Republican voters, every poll that we've seen uh, suggests that the, the Chris Christie stance will get you uh, maybe fourth or fifth place uh, by the time all of the dust settles. So this is a party that is still making up its mind about Donald Trump. They have to be talked to somewhat diplomatically, and that's what I heard Nikki Haley doing. Joel Simmons, Nikki Haley's argument kind of here has been Democrats don't want to see her as the Republican nominee because she would be more formidable going up against President Biden than a Donald Trump as the nominee. What do you make of those, uh, not only those comments by her, but also her implication? You know, she claimed that that person who was there on Wednesday night was a Democratic plant was the word that she used, saying it was someone that President Biden and Democrats placed there. I mean, I don't think that changes what the answer should be. But, but what do you make of the argument that she would be more formidable as a Republican nominee than the former president? Well, let's just assume it was a Democratic plant. But, you know, that. Um, you're gonna you want to run for president of the free world. So if you can't handle a democratic plant at a town hall meeting, how are you going to handle Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, right? So <laughs> let's just put that to the side. The other thing is, you know, there are moments in a campaign. There are moments where voters get a feel for the the, the stuff, the metal of a candidate, and and we don't know when those moments are going to occur. And they usually occur when the candidate is under some duress, and the campaign kind of gets a, a, a the, the voters get a sense. That the, the candidate is bigger than just this moment, and they get a sense of what it is they're about. What Chris Christie is getting at is a, is, is a core thing that he called her slick, slippery and maybe a little slick. Where I grew up in Detroit, they might call it two-faced, right? She's trying to be a little dance, you know, with the MAGA dance with the moderates. You can't really do both in primary politics. People really want politicians with a little bit more certainty. In the general election, absolutely. Voters want to know somebody can navigate the, the tide and figure out how to tie. Uh, different strands together. But in primary politics, particularly in the Republican Party right now, they want hardcore certainty. Errol, one question she did answer was, would she pardon Donald Trump if she became president and she had that power and he needed to be pardoned? Would she do so? She said yes, that she would, uh, essentially arguing it'd be for the, the sake of the country. That's a, an answer that we've also seen from Governor DeSantis. I mean, what do you make of the fact that that is a question? being asked if the GOP field, if they would pardon the Republican frontrunner? It's a, it's, a, it's a really important question, and none of them should be answering it, frankly. Uh, we still have a lot of court cases to play out. We still have uh, questions about ballot access that need to play out. We have a system that needs to be respected. We have facts that need to be uncovered, witnesses who need to be heard. It is much, much, much too soon. Uh, to start talking about whether or not there's going to be a pardon. And so it, it comes across as transparently political, simply trying to appease the Trump base, maybe pull some of them over, uh, act like you're uh, w with that crowd. And it really is a, a shame and it's a little bit shocking. Uh, but the, the reality is it doesn't even work because both of the people who were doing this, Ron DeSantis and also Governor Haley, they're way, way, way far. It's what, 20, 30 points behind Donald Trump? You're, you're not going to uh, sort of finesse your way into this. Either you oppose them or you don't. Uh, and in this case, if you're going to stand up for the system, for the courts, for the federal cases, for the state cases, for the witnesses and for the rule of law, it, it, you, you simply can't announce that as a, as a political bargaining chip before the first primary. It just doesn't make any sense. 
It's a good point. Thanks to you all, Errol Lewis, Jamal Simmons, Alice Stewart. Hope you all have a great Caitlin, 2020, India 2023. Caitlin, two words for you before we go, Caitlin. Yeah? Two words, go blue. Don't do it. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> Don't do that to me, Jamal Simmons. Come on. You know I'm going to have to say roll tide back to that. I'll be at that game on Monday, so uh, we'll be rooting for the Crimson Tide. Happy Jamal Simmons. Thank you. Happy New Year to everyone except Jamal on that note. <laughs> I want to turn to Ohio now because there was a serious, uh, important development that happened there today. The Republican governor there in that state, Mike DeWine, he broke the Republican legislature in his state and vetoed a bill that would have banned minors in the state from receiving gender-affirming care and prohibited gender athletes, transgender athletes, from taking part in female sports. CNN's Miguel Marquez is covering this story. Miguel, what was the justification that, that Governor DeWine, a Republican governor, offered for vetoing this bill from his Republican state legislature? Yeah, given the shape of this across the country, it is very clear that not just Americans, but Republicans as well, are torn on this issue. The governor, Republican governor, driving home the, the point that, look, this is between parents and their children and not about government mandates on health care, uh, saying that th this bill not only prohibited things like um, certainly surgery or, or hormone therapy, but it also uh, prohibited uh, uh, therapy, uh, mental health care for, for some of these kids who might need it. Uh, also, the governor really digging in on the facts on transgender care, making the point that, look, three quarters of kids who seek mental health counseling if they're transgender or non-binary, Two-thirds two of them don't even go to, to, to getting any sort of uh, hormone therapy. The governor really driving home that this is about parents and kids uh, and not about government intervening, intervening in what are very difficult and wrenching decisions. These are gut-wrenching decisions that should be made by parents and should be informed by teams of doctors who are advising them. These are parents who have watched their child suffer, sometimes for years, and who have real concerns that their child may not survive to reach adulthood. And look, for the kids and the parents who are dealing with this, the stakes could not be higher. There is study after study that shows that transgender uh, young people and non-binary young people, there are more suicides and suicide attempts among that population. At a, they're at a much higher rate. Uh, Caitlin? Yeah. And Ohio, in Ohio, Republicans, they do have a supermajority there. So I think it raises the question of whether or not those Republican lawmakers are going to override their Republican governor's veto. What are, what are supporters who wanted him to sign this into law saying? Yeah, some of it has gotten pretty nasty. Um, some of them calling him a child mutilator, uh, being very, very unhappy with the, with the Republican governor and the decisions he's made. They do have a supermajority. They're already talking about overriding that veto. And look, in 20 states right now, the, the Campaign for Human Rights says that there are limits or bans, outright bans on transgender care like this. Uh, and um, that North Carolina in August overrode uh, the Democratic governor there in a similar fashion. So it is expected that the House will begin in, uh, in Ohio some sort of process to override, and senators are already saying they'll override as well. Caitlin? Miguel Marquez, a, a remarkable development that we've seen playing out in multiple states. We'll continue to follow that story. Also ahead here tonight on The Situation Room, the IDF is expanding its military campaign in southern Gaza. Civilians there becoming more desperate as delivering aid to them is only getting more dangerous.
Tonight, the Israeli military says it's expanding its operations in southern Gaza, even as the humanitarian situation has continued to deteriorate, with United Nations officials warning about the difficult and dangerous conditions that they're facing to try to get aid delivered to Gaza. Sina's Nada Bashir has the story. A seemingly endless stream of injuries. The wounded rush to whatever hospitals are still able to treat patients. Day after day, the death toll climbs. There is no respite from Israel's widening offensive. By daybreak, smoke rises above southern Gaza. Many of those who fled here for protection now watch as their loved ones are buried. Grief here is never ending. Israel says it is targeting Hamas, who they say are embedding themselves amongst civilians. But the innocent here are shown no mercy in this war, gripped with fear as Israeli forces repeatedly strike residential buildings and even around hospitals. The house that we stayed in, we thought it was good and we found shelter finally. A house next to it was bombed. The house, the house jiggled and the house went crazy and the windows broke. Some 2.2 million people in Gaza are now said to be facing an acute hunger crisis, prompting this sea of desperation. Crowds grabbing at what little food aid has made it in, unsure of their next opportunity. With no safe place to turn, people continue to stream into Rafah, despite the bombardments now gripping the border city. Well, Caitlin, the situation in Gaza seems to only grow more desperate by the day and getting aid into Gaza is still proving to be a challenge. Just today, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees said its aid convoy was fired at by Israeli troops after passing a checkpoint into southern Gaza. And while no one was injured, the UN Agency has said that aid workers should never be a target. Now, Israel says it is looking into the incident, but this has once again brought into question the security guarantees aid agencies have repeatedly sought from Israel in order to provide the vital aid to millions of civilians in Gaza. Caitlin? Nada Bashir, thank you for that report. Coming up here, airports across the U.S. expecting a busy weekend as millions of passengers who went home are now traveling during the final days of the year. This weekend, officials are expecting a busy one at airports across the country as millions of passengers are going to be taken to the skies as the Christmas holiday season is coming to an end. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Muntean is joining us live tonight from outside of Reagan National Airport outside Washington. Pete, how are things looking so far if people are on their way to the airport? It's been... It's been pretty smooth today, Caitlin. You know, it's quite a down bit, bit here at Reagan National Airport, but thankfully the cancellations and delays have remained at bay. This will be, though, a huge weekend for air travel. Look at the line here at Reagan National Airport during the 7 a.m. rush here. A lot of people coming home after the end of the Christmas holiday, meeting those leaving town for New Year's. And the TSA says it's already screened about 20 million people in total since the start of this rush. After this weekend is over, it says it'll add another 7 million people to to that total 2.6 million people expected at airports across the country today alone 43,000 flights handled by the FAA the good news here is that airlines have performed pretty admirably over this holiday rush 187,000 flights scheduled by airlines during the first week of this rush according to FlightAware 36,000 of them delayed that's about one in every five flights although only 13 
100 canceled. We're talking less than 1% of all flights. I want you to think back to where we were a year ago. Southwest Airlines was in the middle of its 10-day long meltdown. It canceled 16,900 flights in total, stranded about 2 million people. That all started because of bad weather at some of Southwest's major hubs that led to cascading issues behind the scenes. The good news is that over this rush, the weather has been pretty good, and it seems like for the last weekend of the year, it will stay that way. Caitlin. Well, everyone will be watching closely, especially those traveling. Pete Muntine, thank you for that. Still ahead here on the Situation Room, the Maine Secretary of State will join us live in just a few moments to talk about her decision to remove Donald Trump from that state's primary ballot and what is expected to happen next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Happening now, breaking news as CNN is now learning when Donald Trump is expected to appeal decisions removing him from the ballots in Colorado and Maine. Stand by for more details on that. We'll also get reaction from the top election official who disqualified Trump from that ballot in Maine. She'll join us live this hour. Also tonight, the horrific aftermath of Russia's biggest air attack on Ukraine since the start of that war nearly two years ago with dozens dead and injured in multiple cities tonight. Will the deadly assault convince a very divided U.S. Congress to send more aid to Ukraine? Also here in the U.S., powerful storms are sending 20-foot-plus waves crashing into the California coast, causing flooding, danger, and panic, as you can see here, with people racing to escape from walls of water, and it's not over yet. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. Wolf Blitzer is off today. I'm Caitlin Collins, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. And we do start with breaking news this hour. As CNN has now learned that Donald Trump and his legal team are expected to file appeals this Tuesday, challenging his removal, not just from the ballot in Colorado, but also in Maine. CNN's Paula Reed has more reporting on the next steps in these disputes over who is going to be on the ballot, with so much at stake for the 2024 election. The Supreme Court facing increasing pressure to weigh in on whether states can remove former President Trump from the 2024 ballot. After Maine became the second state to kick him off based on the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists holding public office. No secretary of state has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But no presidential candidate has ever engaged in insurrection and been disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. In Maine, ballot eligibility questions first go to the Secretary of State, not the courts. Trump has called for Democrat Shanna Bellows to recuse herself in this case because of previous comments about January 6th, 
where she tweeted, The Jan 6 insurrection was an unlawful attempt to overthrow the results of a free and fair election. She did not remove herself from the matter, and now the issue heads to the courts as Trump and the state's Republican Party vow to appeal. Our voting rights uh, enshrined in the Constitution are sacred to us, and to have one particular person uh, remove remove really the, the, the top candidate from the ballot because she dislikes that person uh, just smells of, of politics. The question of Trump's ballot eligibility has been debated in multiple states, with only Maine and Colorado taking him off the primary ballot. Even California on Thursday opted to include him. In a statement, the Trump campaign accused Colorado and Maine of election interference, attempted theft of an election, and the disenfranchisement of the American voter. Even some of Trump's rivals have criticized states taking him out of the running instead of leaving it to voters. It makes him a martyr. You know, he, he's very good at playing poor me, poor me. Can you have a Republican secretary of state? Uh, disqualify Biden from the ballot because he's let in 8 million people illegally. The Colorado GOP has already appealed that state's ruling to the United States Supreme Court, asking the justices to take up three key questions. Does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to a president? And is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to be enforced by states? and also asking whether the GOP has a First Amendment right to choose its candidates. Trump is also expected to appeal. They're trying to take the election away from the voters. Mm -hmm. With Trump expected to appeal in Maine and Colorado on Tuesday, then the big outstanding ballot eligibility question is Oregon. Just moments ago, Trump's team asked that state Supreme Court to dismiss that challenge, and a decision could come at any time. But Caitlin, if the Supreme Court does not weigh in here, and this question could continue to loom over the 2024 election through November. Because even in states like Michigan and Minnesota that opted to keep Trump on the primary ballot, they left the door open to relitigate this issue for the general election. Yeah, a bit of uh, election chaos potentially in our future. Paula Reed, thank you for that reporting. Stand by because I do have more questions for you and your analysis of what's happening in a moment. But right now, I want to go to the official who is at the center of this, Maine's top election official, the Secretary of State, Shenna Bellows. And thank you so much, uh, Secretary of State, for being here. Obviously, as Paula's reporting there, the Trump team is planning to appeal this decision that you made to Maine's Superior Court on Tuesday. How do you expect them to respond? This, thank you for having me. And the appeal to Superior Court is the logical next step in the process. And indeed, in my decision, I suspended the effect of the decision pending that appeal to Superior Court and the Superior Court's ruling. Well, and we, it was expected. I mean, it was no surprise that they were going to, to appeal this. They did not necessarily expect you to make this decision. But on the basis of how you came to this, critics have said, that, that someone in your position, the main secretary of state, does not have the authority to do this and that the procedures that happened before you made this decision weren't up to par. What is your response to that criticism that you've seen? So it's really important uh, for viewers to understand that the Constitution uh, directs the states to administer elections and every state has different laws with regards to election administration. Maine has a process and as far as I understand it is 
uh, unique in its process in that the legislature passed a law that requires me as secretary to ensure that no candidate placed on the presidential primary ballot uh, is not, that every candidate meets the qualifications of office. And furthermore, under Maine law, if a registered Maine voter wishes to challenge the qualifications of any candidate for office, they cannot go directly to court. They must bring that challenge to the Secretary of State. And I, under the law, was required to hold a hearing within five days of the challenge and required to hold and issue a decision. I could not and did not have the discretion to decline to issue a ruling within five days of the conclusion of the hearing proceedings. You've cited that hearing a bunch, and we looked into it. I mean, at that hearing, there was only testimony from three witnesses. Two of them were complainants. One was a law professor. None of them you know, have firsthand factual knowledge of the events that are at issue. So how did you decide that what you heard in that hearing was enough to draw the conclusion that you did hear that, that Trump should not be on the ballot because of uh, your determination that he engaged in the insurrection? I mean, that's not even something Jack Smith has charged him with. It's important to understand that an administrative hearing under Maine's Administrative Procedure Act and uh, in terms of implementing election law is different than a criminal proceeding uh, in a criminal court. Sure. Uh, the standard is preponderance of the evidence. And furthermore, uh, part of the hearing record, and my decision was based exclusively on the record before me, is not only live testimony that is subject to cross-examination, but also exhibits that are produced and submitted by the parties. And in fact, in this situation, there were thousands of pages of exhibits which I reviewed, including the bipartisan January 6th report, a bipartisan Senate report, a GAO report, uh, a Defense Department report. So there was substantial evidence that complied with the Maine Administrative Procedure Act submitted in this proceeding. Uh, that was subject to my review, and my decision was based solely on the facts before me at the hearing and on the Constitution and the rule of law. And it's part of a process here in our state that now goes to Superior Court and then potentially to the Maine Supreme Judicial Court and then uh, potentially to the U.S. Supreme Court. But Secretary, you looked, at, you looked at those documents that came from outside groups, the January 6th committee, the, one, the GAO report that you cited. I mean, you cited also news articles. There was, there was a YouTube clip. I, I don't know that that would necessarily be admissible in court. And so when critics are scrutinizing this decision, I don't think that they would believe that that rises to what would meet the standard in a courtroom or, or that would meet the standard for due process. What do you say to that? I encourage everyone to read the decision. It is available on the Maine Secretary of State website. I encourage people uh, to read it carefully and understand uh, that the decision is made in accordance with Maine law, the Maine Administrative Procedure Act, and the requirements set forth by the Constitution and my obligation to uphold the Constitution and Maine election law. And these decisions are decisions election officials make every day across the country in terms of ballot access. Now in Maine, the legislature has specifically directed me to ensure that every candidate on a primary ballot meets the qualifications of office. Now in 2022, for example, I held a similar hearing on the issue of qualifications for a district attorney candidate uh, just a few weeks ago. I barred Mr. Chris Christie from Maine's presidential primary ballot uh, because he failed to submit sufficient signatures. That went to Superior Court and my decision was upheld. Now, this decision was certainly 
uh, a more complex question of law and fact, and yet it was something I was required, indeed obligated to do under Maine law. And that's what's so important. He's Rule a of law, I mean, the Constitution, that is supreme in our country. It's really important. And I should note, Chris Christie is appealing that decision, which he himself noted last night. But, but you talked about what you're expected to do in Maine. I mean, Republicans and Democrats alike in Maine, Senator Susan Collins, Senator Angus King, an independent uh, Congressman Jared Golden, they are all criticizing your decision, saying that it's not up to someone, you know, with all due respect to your office, which is an important one, and his obviously secretaries of state have been through uh, a very challenging time since the 2020 election, but that it's not up to you, given you're not democratically elected, you're chosen by the state legislature, you're not a lawyer, and that this hearing, you know, only had one fact witness who was a law professor. And so the criticism has been that it's not really your decision of whether or not someone can be on the ballot. Every elected official swears an oath to the Constitution. I swore an oath to the Maine Constitution and the United States Constitution. And Maine election law requires me to hold a hearing of this sort. Now, Mr. Trump could, of course, produce, have produced witnesses. Should he have chosen to do so, he did not. That being said, my decision was based exclusively on the record before me in that hearing in accordance with Maine law. That is my sole obligation, and I could make no other consideration. Now, I do really appreciate that Senator King also made a comment in his statement that I did what I was required to do by the law. I didn't have an option of declining to hold that hearing or d delaying or not issuing a decision. It was my obligation as Secretary of State. I take that responsibility very seriously. And keep in mind, the events of January 6th were an attack not just on the Capitol, not just on government officials, the former vice president, members of Congress. It wasn't just an attack in which seven people lost their lives. It was an attack on the peaceful transfer of power. And the evidence submitted at the hearing demonstrated that it happened at the behest of and with the knowledge and support of the outgoing president, Mr. Trump. I was in Washington that day. I remember it very well what happened. And I hope you understand why these questions are so important, because this is such a monumental decision that you're making here for someone who is right now the front runner of a major party uh, expected to potentially have the nomination for that party to be on the presidential ballot. And when you made this decision, you mentioned, you know, January 6th, one of the things that the Trump team did in the days before your decision was ask you to recuse yourself because they cited posts where you said January 6th uh, I, I was an insurrection. He, he, they did not. They did, uh, ma'am, uh, Caitlin, they actually did not ask me to recuse myself until after the hearing. That actually happened earlier this week. And right. under uh, I said before law, you made any your request decision. for recusal have to happen prior to the hearing. Okay, so yeah. it's really important to understand that Maine law required me to issue a decision. And uh, should they have made that in a timely way, uh, I would not have recused myself because of my obligations, but also because my political affiliation and my personal views of January 6th have no bearing on this case. My decision was based on what was presented in that hearing and the testimony and the exhibits. I'm glad but, you, I'm glad you uh, said that. I just that. wanted to correct the record that that request was after the hearing. Yeah. I, I said it was before your decision was made, but I understand what you're saying, that they were required, uh, according to Maine law, you're saying to do that before the hearing had even happened, which they did not do. They just did it 
in recent days. But the basis was, was your social media post, which you say had no bearing on your decision. But in the response to to your decision, we have seen Trump world attacking you, coming out, you know, post sharing photos of you that you've you know taken with President Biden. Obviously, we do know you're a Democrat. That's not surprising. But you saw Trump himself sharing on social media ways to contact your office, the information to contact your office. I wonder, given the position that you're in and the decision that you've made, if you have concerns for for your safety since making this decision. I was prepared for the possibility of threats, and I really appreciate uh, law enforcement and the people around me uh, who have been uh, incredibly supportive of my safety and security. Uh, my safety and security is important. So is the safety and security of everyone who works with me. And we have received threatening communications. Those are unacceptable. But regardless, my considerations in this proceeding is to adhere to the process. We are a nation of laws. Maine law required me to hold a hearing and issue a decision. And now it goes to the Superior Court. And I will uphold the ruling of the courts. That is the process that we are due. And again, looking at the evidence and the events of January 6th, it was an insurrection because people attacked not only the Capitol, but also that process of the peaceful transfer of power. It's notable to hear you say that you have gotten threats because of this decision. I mean, how concerning have those threats been to you? Those threatening communications are truly unacceptable. And I certainly worry about the safety of people that I love, people around me, and people who are charged with protecting me and working alongside me. That being said, we are a nation of laws, and that's what's really important. And so I've been laser focused on that obligation to uphold the Constitution. Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellas, obviously, uh, no one should get threats like that for, for carrying out what they believe is their job. Obviously, this is a matter that we know will be handled in the courts as well. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on, for taking our questions on something that is obviously such an important subject, no matter what your opinion, what your view of it is. Thank you very much, Secretary of State Shanna Bellows. Thank you. And our legal experts are here. They've been listening to that interview. We're going to get their reaction to talk about this. The main Secretary of State saying that she has gotten threats as a result of her decision to remove Trump from the ballot in that state. We'll have much more right after a quick break. And we're back with our legal experts following our breaking news as CNN has learned that Donald Trump is expected to file his appeals not only to what happened in Colorado, but also in Maine. Both decisions to remove him from the ballot made by one by the Supreme Court of Colorado, one by the Secretary of State. My panel is here. Ellie, I, I want to start with you because you have been pretty critical of this decision in Maine, talking about how this went down. What did you make of what you heard from the Secretary of State there defending not only uh, the hearing that she had, but also her, her decision to not recuse herself from making this decision. So Caitlin, really insightful interview. I give the secretary a lot of credit. She's been out there answering questions. Good for her, that's transparency. And also it is shameful and disgraceful that she's being subjected to threats. Uh, I think we have to condemn that in the harshest terms and support her. Now, 
As to the first question, due process, the secretary was correct when she noted that this does not have to be at the level of a criminal trial. However, there still does have to be some minimum of due process, and I think there's going to be a real question there. As you noted, there was really only one not even fact witness. It was a law professor who I guess was an expert witness, technically. Now, the secretary said to you just now, well, Donald Trump could have called witnesses if he wanted. The problem is that's not his burden legally. And the secretary acknowledges that in her opinion. It's the burden of the complainants. One witness is really hard to justify. The documents that were submitted, there were some very important reports, the January 6th report, which is, in my view, quite credible. The problem is these documents, many of them contained Hearsay, double hearsay, triple hearsay would absolutely not have been admitted in a civil court, in a criminal court. And so while it's not at the level of a criminal trial, there is some due process and this is going to be scrutinized very carefully. On the recusal issue, I'm completely unconvinced. The secretary said publicly in a tweet well before this hearing that this was an insurrection and Donald Trump was guilty of it. She had pre-decided this issue before the hearing happened. She had this sort of technical thing about the timing, but she also said, I didn't need to recuse anyway. That's just wrong. Any judge who did this would immediately recuse himself or herself. So I respectfully disagree on that point. Thibodeau, you worked on the January 6th committee. She cited that as part of what she used to establish this decision. What do you make of how, how she came to this decision, notwithstanding the criticism of those who have questioned whether she has the authority to actually take this step? Oh, uh, well, Kevin, I, I take a slightly different view than Ellie. I mean, I think there's an immense amount of evidence that's already in the public forum here. Our Jan 6 report, obviously, I find to be extremely credible and to have laid out the facts in excruciating detail over multiple hearings and extensive report about how the former president did, in fact, engage in insurrection. So I think the fact that in Maine there was one witness, I think that's a little bit of uh, not how I would characterize it. I mean, you have to look at the full evidentiary record here. And a lot of these uh, actions happened in public. The American people saw them. The American people saw the speech on the ellipse where he told uh, uh, these folks to go and fight like hell. The American people saw the tweet on December 19th that said to go to D.C., be there, will be wild. So a lot of the facts are in the public forum already. I think it's entirely appropriate for these uh, adjudicators to rely on them. And the distinction between a criminal process here and a civil process is immensely important. And I think it's a bit of a red herring to have the focus on what would happen in a criminal proceeding. We have those protections in a criminal proceeding because you can lose your liberty. You can end up in prison. No one is putting the former president in prison because he may be kicked off a ballot here. So I think conflating those two standards, I think, is, is not fully proper here. And we should be looking at this as what it is, a civil case deciding a civil issue. Well, and Paula Reed, you and I both covered Donald Trump when he was in the White House. And you know well, obviously, the influence that he has on his supporters. What did you make of her saying that she has gotten threats for making this decision and that she's concerned. She didn't even just mention, she didn't even mention her safety. She talked about her loved ones. She talked about the people who are protecting her, her security, saying that she's concerned for their safety. Not surprising at all. We know when former President Trump uses his bully pulpit to go after you, uh, your family, your staff, you face an enormous barrage of threats. It can be very scary. It doesn't matter if you are a state official, if you are a jury foreperson, if you are a judge or a journalist. We've seen this again and again. And I think the point she was trying to make is, look, this wasn't something I volunteered to do. This is the process. No matter how imperfect, this is the process in the state of Maine. And now the larger question that the Supreme 
Supreme Court will likely have to decide is, is this process, right, a, a political uh, official in the state, is that who they thought uh, should analyze the Constitution and decide whether or not someone is an insurrectionist and whether they should be on the ballot? Is that what was intended? That is a very serious question that should now be decided by the Supreme Court. But she is, is adamant. She's like, look, I did what I was supposed to do. Ellie, any final thoughts on what Tuesday could look like once we do get those appeals from the Trump team? Yeah, we're on to the next step here, Caitlin. For sure, I think this will go to the Supreme Court. I think the fact that we now have two states that have gone down this road make it imperative that the Supreme Court take this case. A lot of people are asking, how long will it take the Supreme Court? The answer is as long or as short as they want. They're not on any external timeline. I hope that the justices recognize the importance of this, the time sensitivity of this. They can move very quickly if they need to, and I think they need to do that here. We'll see how quickly they do move if they move at all. Thanks to you all for being here. Coming up here on the Situation Room, there is new reaction coming in for Russia's deadly bombardment that we have seen of Ukraine today. It is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, since the early days of the war. Homes, schools, even a maternity hospital all hit. A new warning tonight from the United States on Russia's new multi-city air assault on Ukraine. President Biden saying it shows that Vladimir Putin remains intent on wiping out the country. Sinan's Orrin Lieberman has more on what happened in this massive and deadly attack. The explosions across Ukraine quickly drowned out the air raid sirens. Friday morning, the largest Russian air attack since the war began, according to the Ukrainian military, wreaking havoc on a people who've been the target of the Kremlin's barrages for nearly two years. Nothing changes. Russia's goal is the same, to destroy Ukraine as a state and to destroy all rebellious Ukrainians as a nation. The attack killed dozens across Ukraine, a number that threatens to keep rising as rescue workers dig through the rubble, pulling some out alive and some not. In Dnipro, Russian missiles tore apart a hospital and its maternity ward. Ukrainian officials said only a frantic rush to the air raid shelters spared 12 pregnant women and four newborn babies inside. This is where the maternity rooms are. This is exactly the side of the building that was on fire. Russia's array of deadly weapons hammering many of Ukraine's major cities. Hypersonic Kinzhal missiles, S-300s, anti-ship missiles and Shahed drones fired on Kyiv, Dnipro, Lviv and more. The attack coming just days after Ukraine sank a Russian landing ship in Crimea. Russia's Ministry of Defense said the Novocherkask was damaged, but UK Defense Intelligence said the ship was destroyed. Another blow to the Kremlin's Black Sea fleet. On Friday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise visit to the frontline city of Avdivka in eastern Ukraine, wishing his troops what may seem impossible right now. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It is hard. It's pain and losses. And these are the people who keep Ukraine alive. Life is being fought for here. And we are grateful to every warrior, to every soldier, sailor, sergeant and officer bearing this war on their shoulders. Ukraine calling for more help. Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba saying on social media that he wishes the explosions could be heard in all major capitals, headquarters and parliaments, which are currently debating further support for Ukraine. This week, the U.S. announced an up to $250 million security package to Ukraine, but it's the last shipment unless Congress approves a White House request for $60 billion more to support Kyiv. President Joe Biden urged Congress to act Friday, saying the latest attack was proof that Putin seeks to obliterate Ukraine and subjugate its people. He must be stopped.
Meanwhile, the apparent effects of the barrage not just limited to Ukraine. Poland says a Russian missile entered their airspace before it disappeared. They say they were tracking it, and they summoned the Russian charge of affairs to provide an explanation as to why a missile or an unidentified object entered Polish airspace. The Russians have said they will provide an explanation uh, only when they are presented with more evidence. Caitlin? Hmm. More evidence of their own missile going into Polish airspace. Orrin Lieberman, thank you for that report. Joining me now for everything that we've seen happening in Ukraine in the last several hours, Congressman Jim Himes, the Democrat of Connecticut, and the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, thanks for being here tonight. What do you make and what is your assessment of why Russia is doing this now? Why this massive bombardment, which some officials say is the biggest that they have seen since they started counting just how many uh, missiles and everything that Russia was sending to Ukraine? Yeah, um, well, Caitlin, this is a well-established pattern with the Russians. We've seen it time and again where the Ukrainians, against all odds, have a stunning military victory. In this case, of course, the obliteration of a landing ship, which was quite probably carrying immense amounts of ammunition for the Russians. They hit that uh, and destroy it. um, And the Russians respond, of course, not with attacks on military targets, but with attacks on civilian targets. So the Russians score a military victory, whether it's what happened or the attack on the Kerch Bridge, and the Russians respond by attacking civilians. And, and And I say that because it's a good reminder of what's at stake here, about the fact that this is not just a distant conflict in in Eastern Europe that we don't need to worry about. This is, in our lifetime, pretty much as close to a war between the forces of, uh, of, 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 of democracy and of good against a 19th century style dictator who, if he is not defeated in Ukraine, will look for more. Uh, and so, again, sadly, too many of my colleagues are drifting away from that understanding. And we will, if that ultimately compromises our ability to provide aid, um, pay the price for that attitude for decades to come. Well, and so given that, I mean, what's the message that Putin has that he's getting from your colleagues on Capitol Hill as the U.S. is not yet prepared or it's it's an open question of whether or not they will pass a new aid bill for Ukraine? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I can cut through all the baloney. Uh, I've watched now the excuses for being against uh, to aid to Ukraine for a very long time. You know, people say, oh, well, we're concerned that there is no plan, no strategy. Uh, This coming after, you know, a year in which the Ukrainians actually managed to recapture about half the territory that they'd lost to Russians and score staggering military victories. Uh, There is complaints about, well, we don't know where the weaponry is going. You know what? I'm ranking member of the Intelligence Committee. I know where the weaponry is going. As soon as it crosses into Ukraine, it is used against Russia. Uh, And, you know, at the bottom of this, Caitlin, is something uh, dark and ominous, which is we are approaching the election of 2024. Donald Trump really, really, really doesn't like Ukraine because it was the source ultimately of his first impeachment. Uh, And therefore, about half the Republicans in the House uh, are not risking uh, doing what their Republican forebears, going back to Ronald Reagan, going back to well before Ronald Reagan would have done, which is to say, think about this as a fight of freedom and democracy against dictators and authoritarianism. Think about what President Xi is going to take away from the United States cutting and running. Thinking about what the Iranians and, and the North Koreans are going to think of us as the sort of you know, leader for freedom and democracy if we cut and run. Congressman, given that, and obviously we've seen how House Republicans feel about aid to Ukraine. Most of, a lot of them, not most of them, I should say, a lot of them don't want to pass it again. But what is on the table right now? Because there are Senate Republicans who do want to get aid to Ukraine passed, but they say that Democrats are going to have to, to swallow some agreements when it comes to 
uh, on immigration on the southern border. And obviously those are ones that a lot of Democrats don't like. But do you believe that your Democratic colleagues in the Senate should work with Republicans to kind of bite the bullet here on this to get another aid bill to Ukraine passed? Well, let me say two things about that, which feel like they might be in tension with with each other. Imagine, imagine saying that unless we get what we want on the border, uh, Ukraine gets it in the head. Uh, imagine had FDR said that, you know, well, we'll uh, fight the Japanese empire, which just destroyed Pearl Harbor. But here are a whole bunch of domestic priorities that are important to me. So, you know, at some level, it's just another reason why the Republicans have drifted away from their commitment to defending freedom and democracy around the world. But to answer your question very specifically, look, they are in the majority in the House. We should do better on the border, no question about it. We could do an awful lot with respect to immigration reform and border security and stopping the inflow, the uncontrolled inflow of people. So yes, let's engage, let's have that conversation. I know it's gonna be hard, but recognize that immigration is one of the hardest things that the Congress does. It's why we haven't passed an immigration bill in decades. And so contemplate the possibility that it may not work. And if it does not work, you don't get a border deal and Ukraine gets swallowed by Vladimir Putin. Is that really the structure you wanna do? But to answer your question, yes, Let's negotiate a border deal. Uh, let's see if we can get that done. Uh, and if we can get it done, terrific. But either way, we need to support the Ukrainians in this existential fight. We'll see if they do. Congressman Jim Himes, thanks for your time. Thank you, Caitlin. Just ahead, after storing up a political controversy during her campaign swing in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley has moved on to Iowa, but the backlash appears to be following her. Nikki Haley campaigning in Iowa tonight with just over two weeks before the caucuses there, hoping to move past the backlash that she has seen in the last two days after she was asked about the cause of the Civil War. Her Republican rivals, though, not letting her walk away from the controversy just yet. They are continuing their criticism. Our political panel is here. Bakari Sellers, Scott Jennings, thank you both. And let's start with what Chris Christie had to say about this today. Obviously, he benefits from Nikki Haley uh, being under attack. He is taking full advantage of this. This is his assessment of why she gave that answer on Wednesday night. This has been her whole campaign. She does not want to offend anyone. She won't tell the truth about Donald Trump, even though she knows that he was the cause of January 6th. She won't say it. Even though she knows that he regularly lies, she won't say it. She was asked by a voter again in New Hampshire, would she categorically rule out being Donald Trump's vice president? And she won't answer the question. These are simple questions for, to a smart woman. And when she doesn't answer them, you have to believe she's being a slippery, slick politician. Scott Jennings. Yeah, whacking away on the person that's between him and third place, I guess. I mean, that's the uh, that's the issue here for Chris Christie and Nikki Haley. They're competing for a sliver of Republicans in New Hampshire who are never Trump or want to move on from Trump definitively. And also this big chunk of independence. It's a semi-open primary. Independents can cross in. He figures and she figures uh, that there's some anti-Trump independents out there that would love to see the Republican Party nominate someone else. The trouble is she's way ahead of him in the polling, and he's hoping that uh, this reminds people uh, about some of the things that maybe uh, they didn't like about Nikki Haley in a preconceived way. I don't know if it's going to work, and I don't know where he goes from here if he were to somehow get close to her or eclipse her in New Hampshire. Uh, but that's the play, and as long as he's in the race, she's going to have a hard time, I think, overcoming Trump in New Hampshire. And Bakari, I mean, what does that mean for Nikki Haley in these final crucial days where she is trying to go after that more moderate coalition? Does this have lasting impact on that? 
I think it does. I, I don't think the issue per se has a lasting impact. I don't think people are going to be holding against Nikki Haley when they see her in the street of, of who started the Civil War or what was the Civil War fought over. But it does show that she's not prepared for it. I'm like, it, it makes sense that, you know, she's somewhat like Icarus and in, in, in the sense that she got too close to the sun. She got too close to Donald Trump. And when the lights were brightest, uh, she folded. I think that's the larger takeaway from this. And Chris Christie's right. I mean, those of us who know Nikki Haley, who have campaigned against her, who've worked with her, who've sat beside her, who've legislated with her, we know this to be true, that she's someone who um, will try to appease everybody and every audience. And she got caught on an issue that's very, very simple. This is not something that's a very difficult issue for most Americans who are genuine and intellectually honest. But when you try to cater to many bases, including the base of the Republican Party, Sometimes you get caught like this. She much rather be talking about Clemson's, uh, and I hate talking about Clemson anything, but Clemson's victory today over Kentucky than talking about this this uh, this issue of slavery. But here we are. Well, I, I think one other issue, Caitlin, on this on this back and forth uh, that she's having right now with Christie and and on this slavery issue is, you know, these campaigns are often. And not just about the issues, but people are looking to see how you'll react when adversity hits. She has benefited from being probably the most polished politician in the Republican field so far. She hasn't really had a gaffe or a media cycle that's been right. super negative. And so I think people were looking to see, hey, how's she going to react when, when it's her time in the barrel? And I'm not certain the cleanup day uh, was really all that impressive. I don't think, you know, most sort of hardcore Republican voters are all that worried about media outrages. But I will say these independents, both in New Hampshire, and by the way, uh, anybody can caucus in Iowa, they might have been looking at her as, as an alternative for the party to move on from Trump. And this this may have given them some pause. It's hard to measure it. I don't know how you would even poll it at this point. But, I, but I'm guessing it gave a few people some pause. It, it is a good question in the sense of what this looks like. But Bakari, I mean, what something David Oxerod said the other night was it's only a gaffe if it, if it reveals something deeper or something that's true about a politician, I, I believe. And with the fact that the focus now is on how she does answer, she is so much more closely scrutinized even now since this answer. And, and she was asked, you know, about whether or not she'd be Donald Trump's vice president if he asked her that. Obviously, Donald Trump's not the nominee yet. It's not a real a real situation, but it is a hypothetical. Others have been asked. They said yes or no. She did not answer that with a yes or no. Yeah, I mean, this shows who she is. First of all, Nikki Haley's not racist. I think that there are a lot of people in the media and on, on, particularly to my left who want to uh, deduce that from her remarks. That's not the case at all. But what it does show, and David Axelrod is right. I mean, th these presidential campaigns, they, they show who you are. They show your true character. And Nikki Haley is at Aphoris. I mean, she's a fence sitter and she doesn't really stand for much. And that is what happens when you run for president of the United States. Donald Trump showed us one thing, and I can't wait for Twitter to blow up about this because it's true. But like, if you're going to be ignorant, stand in it. Like Donald Trump owns his ignorance. He owns his bravado. He owns his isms, his racisms, his xenophobia. He owns those things. Nikki Haley is not able to stand in it. And I think that is the problem that she's facing today. Bakari Sellers, we'll see what your Twitter mentions look like after this. Bakari Sellers, <laughs> uh, Scott Jennings, thank you both. Thank you. Coming thank up you. here on The Situation Room, California communities have already reeling, or are reeling tonight still from these remarkable images, massive waves. They're now bracing for more. An update right after this.
Tonight, officials are warning of high waves, dangerous rip currents, and coastal flooding in California throughout the weekend, with San Francisco expecting potentially 40-foot waves. These monster waves have been pounding the California coastline, causing injuries and also damage to property. More on what they've been seeing from CNN's Lucy Kavanaugh. The terrifying moment a monster wave slammed into the Ventura, California coastline. Bystanders running for their lives. Everyone okay? The surge sweeping people and vehicles down the street. At least eight people taken to the hospital. This wave just came seemingly out of nowhere. Just this rush. I mean, you saw it. It was six, eight feet deep. I'm kind of just shaking. Um, just, I'm just trying to hold on to positive thoughts. The wave so strong, this lifeguard had to be pulled to safety by Good Samaritans. This is insane. When I was up on the pier, I actually felt the pier shaking. It doesn't even seem real. The massive waves pummeling the coastline, wreaking havoc, flooding streets and businesses. Like this beachfront restaurant in Santa Cruz. I just feel bad for the restaurants. I know they just went through renovations from the last time this happened. While coastal residents have seen plenty of Mother Nature's wrath, there's still concern. It's a pure state of panic, to be honest, as far as the community goes, because you know there's plenty out there that are not prepared. Crews and residents now dealing with the aftermath. Right now, uh, we're just trying to keep the houses from flooding. While also preparing for what's to come. We are expecting higher waves coming in, and it only takes one for you to be washed out. Parts of the California coast could see towering waves through the weekend. Coastal flood and high surf alerts stretching from the southern border to the Bay Area. Officials urging caution. The ocean is a very dynamic, dangerous place. Always as a kid, it was never turn your back on Grandmother Ocean. So make sure you know that. All Ventura County beaches will remain closed through New Year's Eve as massive waves continue to pound the California coast. Things a little bit calmer here in Manhattan Beach. Authorities have officially closed the pier. It's supposedly been closed all day, but as you can see, people, Caitlin, clearly not heeding the warning to stay away. Caitlin? Yeah. If they saw those videos from earlier, they may not be up there. Lucy Kavanaugh, stay safe as you continue to, continue to monitor this. Thank you. We'll be back after a quick break. A new intelligence assessment warns that the New Year's Eve celebration in Times Square remains a, quote, attractive target for terrorists and extremists, with that assessment saying that the Israel-Hamas war has created what they say is a heightened threat environment. The New York City mayor, Eric Adams, says that there are no specific threats to the weekend celebrations, I should note, but officials are not taking any chances. The New York Police Department says it's going to expand its safety zone, that thousands of officers are going to be deployed to the area on Sunday. We'll obviously keep a close watch on that. For now, I'm Caitlin Collins, filling in for Wolf Blitzer here in the Situation Room, but I'll be back at nine on The Source for one last show before we close out 2023. Happy New Year to everyone. Aaron Burnett, Out Front, starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.